0: Well, we're back in our David series. He was an ordinary man who became an extraordinary king. And you'll remember that the story really begins with this picture of of David as this great spear anointed king through whom God would bring salvation to his people without sword or spear. And David looked like the complete package. He looks like the guy who perfectly embodies what the people demanded from God in 1 Samuel 8. They longed for a king who would bring justice internally, judging justly over the people, bringing peace to them, and also a God who well, I mean, a man who would uh, go out and fight their battles for them. And that's exactly who David has been. See, God in 2 Samuel 7:12, promised David that he was his spirit-anointed king, a unique king through whom he would raise up an offspring who would give in a reign over his kingdom forever. But you'll remember in 2 Samuel 11, everything takes a dramatic turn. 2 Samuel 11 looks like an absolute crime scene in the book of 2 Samuel. It's a place where David commits murder and commits adultery. Uh, David repented in chapter 12. But God told David that there would be consequences for his sin. He would be pardoned, but there would be a consequence. And in verses 10 to 11, he says, The sword shall never depart from your house. And not only that, I will raise up evil from within your house against you. And 2 Samuel 13 to 18 actually double clicks on that. And it highlights this son Absalom who becomes the fulfillment of what God promised as a consequence for David's sin. See, Absalom is that evil. He immediately murders his brother in chapter 13, and then went five years without seeing David. Now, the book of Samuel never blushes at God's sovereignty over all things. Uh, You'll see echoes of this throughout. Uh, They're pretty clear echoes. Uh, God promised that he would raise up David's offspring in chapter 7. He would raise him up. God would do that wasn't like a, a potential world that might exist. It's the world that does exist, the one that God is sovereign over. But he also says in 2 Samuel 12 that he would raise up evil against the house of David. He's, he's going to raise up in the same way that evil. In other words, God is sovereign over both of these experiences. And we're not going to get bogged down in that for now, but we get an interesting snapshot of Absalom in 2 Samuel 14, 25 to 27. If you look in 2 Samuel 14, 25-27, we get a a little picture of what this man was like, this son. It says, Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. He was a good-looking guy. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he cut it. And he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. They were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar, and she was a beautiful woman. Now, Absalom is the hairy favorite son of David, a lot like Esau. And 200 shekels, that's nothing to, to scoff at. If you look at the translation rate, that's five pounds. Think about this. This is a really handsome guy, no blemishes, and a five-pound man bun. I mean, this is a guy that you really want to hang out with, right? His grooming habits, so they might tell us a little bit something more about his heart. In fact, commentator Robert Bergen explains that the Torah cited really two reasons for haircuts. The first one was to complete the Nazarite vow before God. The second one was if you were purifying yourself to be prepared to be used by God in ceremonial cleanliness before the Lord. Both of them were Godward reasons. But you'll notice that here, there is no godly reason given for him cutting his hair, except that, you know, it got a little inconvenient. It's really about me. It's not about God. That really is, I believe, the way that we see Absalom pictured throughout. See, God is sovereign, but Absalom will show himself to be responsible for his sins throughout. He does not fear God. See, Absalom, you'll notice as we track through chapters 13 to 18 that he steals the heart of the men of Israel, promising to be a better king, to bring a better kind of justice than David did. He even chased David and his mighty men out of Jerusalem. Now, two great ironies run through this text. The first is that Absalom promises to bring justice, but in doing so, he sets himself up against God's anointed. See, justice here is in accordance with God's law, with God's revealed will. And he is in his very claims and attempts to take the throne from David, denying God and his calling of David as his anointed king. He's breaking the law, murdering his father, trying to murder his father, violating the fifth commandment. He's not one who seeks to keep the law or, or, or to uphold justice according to God's standards. He's kind of figuring it out as he goes along. But second, you notice that David loves his son, who is also his enemy. And those two ironies meet head on, this desire of of justice and this desire of love throughout. Now, our big idea is this, if you're taking notes, we have good news of God's justice and love on display in Christ. We have good news of God's justice and love on display in Jesus Christ. I put Christ. It will be Jesus eventually. But first, I want you to notice this. David orders men to deal gently with Absalom. You'll you'll see this in verses 1 to 5. Now, if you're tracking through 2 Samuel 17, you'll notice that it ends with David and his mighty men resting and regrouping in the wilderness of Mahanim after all of Israel has been chasing them. Here's David on the run again. It was from Saul at the beginning of his life, and at the end, it's his own son Absalom that's chasing him and his men. But in this valley, they are, um, in this wilderness, they are actually reassembling. They are resting. They're getting prepared. They're making plans. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Voltron. I don't know if you remember that cartoon uh, where you've got these lion robots that are pretty awesome in their own right, but whenever they face a really big enemy, they assemble, right? And, and then when they go and fight, it's like now they're ready and nobody's safe. Well, that's exactly what's happening with David and his mighty men. They are reassembling. David is gathering them together. He is putting his uh, mighty men, his leaders, over groups of men. So you've got Joab and his brother Abishai and then Atai, And they are all set up, these three different groups with different sets of men, to go out and fight together in unison. And watch out when the mighty men assemble. Now Absalom followed the foolish advice of going out to war with his men. He was given wrong advice purposely to set him up. That's what happens when we seek to sin against God or to defeat God's plans. We, we end up getting caught in our own traps. But here we may get a sense of why David stayed behind sometimes. You'll notice again that David's men told them that he was too important to go with them. You know, David, you're, they said, you're worth 10,000 men, so you really just need to stay here. And David stayed. But catch how David communicates his heart for his son Absalom in verse 5. And this is really one of the main plot lines throughout. See, it says in the king in verse 5: order Joab and Abishai and Atai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave the orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Now, think about this: Absalom had murdered his brother Amnon. He had conspired against the king David. He had stolen Israel. And sought to kill his father, David, who is, by the way, also God's spirit-anointed king. This is not a good guy. And yet David loved his son. The son that wanted to kill him, his enemy, this rebel. And he ordered his men to be gentle to him, saying, do this for my sake. Do it for me. David loves Absalom. Absalom is David's son. But here it is, it is confusing and interesting It's complex because he's also the enemy of God's Christ. There's a real sense in which Absalom looks like an Old Testament version of an antichrist. And he's also his son. But second, notice that we find nature fighting for David in verses 6 to 8. Now, this is interesting. After six chapters of buildup, Absalom's fight with David's men lasts just three verses. Kind of anticlimactic, something we've gotten used to in the, the storyline of David. I mean, when God fights for David, the fights are short, right? There is no force that really can stand in opposition to God and to his will. And two details stand out in these three verses. For one, you'll notice that David's men went against Israel in verse 6. David's men pitted against Israel. Very clearly. See, Israel stands against their king. But David is not merely their king. David is God's king. So David's people and David's own son have come against God's anointed. Very interesting. Second, did you catch that the battle is being fought in the forest of Ephraim? Now, this seems to be outside of Jerusalem, outside of the promised land. David's mighty men make short work of it. You'll notice in this forest, they killed 20,000 men. That's two times the men that David's own soldiers told him he was worth. And yet here, we find that there is something fascinating in verse 8. Look there. It says, the battle, it spread over the face of all the country and the force devoured more people than the sword that day. I don't miss this. 20,000 Israelites died at war. We're not even told how many men David lost, probably a small number in comparison, not even worth mentioning. But we're told the forest ate more people than the sword of man did that day. Now, this likely means that the men died in the forest. Some got bit by snakes or fell into maybe... Uh, A sand trap or I don't know you've watched the princess bride you know what happens in forests but in the midst of this I believe there might be a more subtle image that's going on the image here gives the idea that the forest is fighting more valiantly for David that day than his own mighty men did what kind of king does the forest fight for I mean I've heard of trees having ears but trees with mouths that fight for a king? I mean, this seems to echo Eden where Adam was commanded to work and keep the garden. And work is a good thing that we get to do if not for Adam's sin. It was only after Adam's sin that God told Adam in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. Before you, like, threw out seeds and green sprouted up, it was not a deal. After this, man... We're putting Moon Valley in business because you keep on killing stuff, right? Like, it just doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. Nature seems to fight against us. It was only after man sinned that God told him this. And Adam was supposed to exercise dominion like a king over creation. But here God says creation would war against humanity. And here on this day, creation fights for his king, not against him. Now, maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into this, but... It's almost as though the forest senses that in some way, the promises of David's future offspring would bring a kind of liberation for it too. Doesn't Romans 8.20 speak of this? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God? Could this be a hint of that even here? We don't have time to go there. But the majority of chapter 18 really is actually focusing on Absalom's death and David's response. That's really what this text wants us to think about. Absalom's death and how David responds to it. Notice third, Absalom dies in verses 9 to 18. He dies in verses 9 to 18. You can't miss the, the irony and the theological significance of Absalom's death in verse 9. Look there with me. In 2 Samuel 18, look at verses 9. This is what it says in verse 9. It says this. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Just happened. And Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great terebinth, and his head was caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. I mean, that had to be a funny scene. Some, some speculate that maybe Absalom got his hair caught in the tree. You know, the man bun. He should have cut it before war. Or, or maybe his, his head got caught like between branches. We, we don't know. All we know is this tree caught him up. He was hung in this tree. Maybe he was unconscious as his legs were dangling down. We, we don't know, but we do know that his regal mule, this, this, this bearer of, of a king-like figure, just kind of kept on going. And you can imagine that Absalom is just walking, watching him walk away, along with his hopes of being king. Now, there, there's one of the soldiers that came to Joab. And, and Joab, he, he tells him, you, you won't believe what I saw, like Absalom is hanging in a tree. And, and, and Joab's like, well, why didn't you kill him? I would have given you, uh, what, 10 pieces of silver and a belt, like a really nice belt, and and yet you just ignored him. And the man responds in verses 12 to 13. And what he says, I think, gives us a a pretty good image of the way that people viewed Joab, this chief commander of David. He says, beginning in verse 12, you are my, uh, he says, beginning in verse 12, But the men said to Joab, this man, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. See, this man honored the king as he's speaking to Joab, and he knew that he couldn't trust Joab. If he were to do what Joab had said, he says, Joab, you probably would have hung me out to dry. See, Joab doesn't even let his, him finish before he says, I don't have time for this, and he throws three javelins right in the heart of Absalom. He doesn't even flinch at, at disobeying David, and Joab kills Absalom just like he killed Uriah for David, just like he killed Abner for himself, and then his ten armor bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him, and Joab seeks justice without compassion. That's that's Joab. He knew that peace would not come until Absalom was gone, and so he does what good leaders do. He he took him out. But then in verses 16 to 18, they give us a a picture of the end of of Absalom. This son of a king who sought to take the throne and to exalt himself, even above God and God's king. This is an end that I think we need to pay attention to. This is what he says in verses 16 to 18. He says, This. He says, Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now, Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. See, once Absalom was dead, Joab blows the trumpet because he understands that the war is over, victory has been won. I think these verses, before we move on, teach us a lesson about those who seek to exalt themselves without careful regard to God. Apparently, Absalom's sons died because he had sons that were mentioned previously. So here he builds a pillar in the king's valley so that he would be remembered because he would not have sons to carry on his legacy. Now, Building a monument in the king's valley, I think it says something. It says something about the way that you view yourself, right? Like, who builds monuments in the king's valley? Kings do. He saw himself as, as a king. And Not only that, building a, a pillar violates God's law. Uh, Deuteronomy 16.22 might be in view here where we are told that God says, you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. Not only that, Absalom sought to make a name for himself. He, he murdered, he conspired. He even sought to kill his own father, the Lord's anointed. And God delivered David yet again without David himself lifting a sword or spear. Not only did Absalom not have a great day, not only did he get, not get the throne that he thought he was promised, he died a cursed death. He's buried under stones, which reminds us of Deuteronomy 21:21. Uh, there we're told, that if a rebellious son will not obey his parents, then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. And if you keep on reading down in verse 23, it says, and a hung man is cursed by God. Does it sound familiar? I mean, this is Absalom. It's not just Absalom. We've seen other characters that have faced this death. We find the death of Ai back in Joshua 8 who is a wicked king who was hung and buried under stones. And then there were five Amorite kings who Joshua killed and they were hung and buried under stones. And so Absalom is finding himself in line, not with the great men of Israel and great kings, but instead a cursed man of whom others are ashamed. In fact, he wasn't even buried in Jerusalem, but in the forest, far apart from his family burial tomb under a heap of stones outside of the promised land forever. Brothers and sisters, the things that we hope for in the gospel are eternal things. So much more important than the momentary ambitions that this world tries to tell us that we were created for. We were created for so much more. We were created for glory that outlasts your last breath. And yet here we find that Absalom sold himself out and lost everything. Absalom died as an enemy, and a rebel, He sought to be a king, and he died in a grave in a forest. But catch this. Joab sought to reconcile Absalom and David in chapter 14. You, you might have read that and, and remembered that, but Joab is complicated. And he, he often seeks justice in his own way. See, Absalom deserved death. It was a just death. He, he was a, a rebel against God's king. But as John Woodhouse observes, justice triumphed over david's love here but if david had his way in this story love would have triumphed over justice see absalom's life is a cautionary tale for all those who would seek to exalt themselves without regard to god absalom sought power apart from god and through the wisdom of this world and jesus the greater son that would come from the line of david came saying in matthew 16:25 to 26 Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I think Absalom's also a cautionary tale for parents. You know, moms and dads, when we think about this son, we need to make sure that we are setting up before our children the right things that they should be seeking their value in. I mean, maybe, and this is speculation for illustration's sake, David set up being the king, the offspring that was spoken of in 2 Samuel 7, as kind of the goal for Absalom, and Absalom wanted to be a king. He wanted to reign, and he was not going to wait for what was rightly his. Our kids, they need to know that our greatest dreams for them is not a participation ward playing football and peewee football. They need to know that a good dance recital is not the greatest joy that exists this side of heaven. They need to know that them being really successful financially is not a bad thing, but it's not the most important thing. They need to see that we really love to play Legos with them, but they were made for more than building things with Legos. Our kids need to see that they were made for a transcendent glory that has come down on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. They were made for so much more, and they don't need to lose sight of that. And that it's once they know who they are in Christ that it is from that they pivot and they bring glory to God in all of the unique ways that he has made them. But without understanding that, they're not ready yet to be what they have been made to be. That's Absalom. Absalom's death was just, but the rest of his text... This text here speaks of David's heart for Absalom. It seems as though justice and love can't coexist here. In fact, Absalom's death is is good news to everyone but David. Did you notice that? The rest of this chapter, I think the reason that so much time is spent on these messengers and who gets to take the news, and you're like, why is there so much time spent to that? There was like three verses on the war. It's because they want us to see David's heart in this. How everyone sees it as good news but David. Think about this, three verses, fourth, David receives good news in verses 19 to 32. Three verses are given to the war itself, 10 verses to Absalom's death, and 15 verses to how David received the news. This seems to emphasize David's heart posture to the news of Absalom's death. Now this word for for good news that we find in, in these verses, verses 19 to 32, this repeated throughout, it's really the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament word, gospel. It's a word that's used 30 times in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. Nine of them are right here in this text. Who can forget other places we've heard of this kind of good news spoken of? Like Isaiah chapter 32, where he asked, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? How beautiful. Good news is a glorious, beautiful thing to receive. Ahim asks, Is a priest who embodied this. He was a a messenger priest. He would run with news. You'll remember that he did this back in chapter 17, warning David that he was about to get taken out. And so it saved David and his men from danger. Now, Joab wants to send the Cushite in these verses to take the news. He's a Gentile. And we don't know why he wants to send him and not Ahimaz, but it likely seems because he thought that the Gentile was a little more expendable. See, David, he knew, would not see this news as good news. You'll remember that David has responded poorly to bad news in the past. Uh, he killed the Amorite who brought the message of Saul and Jonathan's death back in uh, chapter 1. He killed the two Israelites who delivered the news of ish death in chapter 4. And even after Joab sends the Cushite saying in verse 21 to Ahimaaz, Go tell the king what you have seen. In verse 22, Ahimaaz still wants to go, and Joab says, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will not have a reward for the news? You know, kings could get really excited about good news. And when a king's happy, he's got lots of stuff, and it might be a a good thing to be sort of in you know, that good moment and the generosity of a happy king. And Joab says, look, this is, not, this is a good moment for us, but I don't think you understand this is not going to be a good moment for David. But Ahimaaz, the priest, still persists. He says, can I run behind the Cushite? Because he sees clearly the defeat of Absalom is good news. Ahamaz even took an easier route so that he could pass the Cushite and lap him. He's eager to get to the king. And David is eager to hear the good news as he sat between the two gates with the watchman overhead, looking to see far beyond the horizon who would be coming. And the watchman saw a man and then two men. And as he watches, he recognizes Ahimaz running. Ahamaz has brought a lot of good news to King David. Every time he went out, he got victory. And yet here we find that he is coming back and the watchman recognizes his run. Now I think it's because it was a good run. It's not like my run where you're like, yeah, that's a bad run. It was, it was acknowledged that this is a good run. It's a good looking run. That's Ahimaaz, the guy who always brings good news. He's faithful. And David says in verse 27, he is a good man. Ahimaaz, he comes with good news and his hopes are rising. And Ahimaaz delivers the good news in verse 28. Look what it says. He says this, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the King. He saved you. The Lord, the Lord did this. He delivered. This is the theology of the moment. God did it. Now normally you would expect David to celebrate victory or or God's deliverance from his enemy or maybe for him to even ask, well, how many of our men were lost? Because these brave, valiant men, they, they deserve to be remembered. But his only concern is his son Absalom. So we don't know if Ahimaaz lied or simply withheld the truth in this moment. But when David says what happened to his son Absalom, Ahimaaz says, I don't know what happened to him. So he turned to the Cushite who arrived again in verse 31. And in verse 31, you'll notice he says that he has good news. The Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. Do you see it again? It's not just the Jew. It's the Gentile that are coming with good news to the king, God's king. And they're saying, look what God has done. He's delivered us. He saved us. This is the point where you celebrate God. But then the king asked again in verse 32, and is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite responds in verse 32, saying, May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Very subtle way to say, Absalom is gone. He died. Now, in one sense, when you read a story like this, I know this looks a little bit like a dumpster fire, like there are a lot of things that are going on. You're like, how does this fit together? And in one sense, David really looks like a, a good dad here. He looks like every dad, right? He loves his son. A, a good dad is a good thing, and a good dad, he loves his kids. God's the father who, who disciplines his son whom he loves. That's what good parenting looks like. I don't know that David looks like that kind of dad in these chapters. You know, David is a passive father who disciplined Absalom by ignoring him for five years. But this isn't a text really about 10 ways to be a better dad by Monday. Now, see, this text is a text that shows us how David looks like a bad king here. See, David is God's spirit-anointed king through whom God would raise up his eternal kingdom. He's the hope of the nations. And if anyone should see the world through God-shaped lenses... In other words, looking at the world not based on worldly ambitions, worldly values, but based on God's values. It should be this king. This king is supposed to be central to the promise of the hope of the nations. But did you notice that both this Jew and this Gentile messenger come with good news of God's deliverance, but David is fixated on the just death of his evil son. See, Absalom's the one who rose up against David, and David isn't just a dad in this story. David is God's Messiah, his Christ, his spirit-anointed king, which makes Absalom a kind of Old Testament anti-Christ. And this isn't a good look. David loves this anti-Christ more than he loves his people. And David looks like he loves Absalom more than he loves God. Christian brothers and sisters, we we received good news about God's greater son, Jesus who is the Christ, and Jesus says again and again that the good news of his life, death, and resurrection ought to reshape the way that we view the world all around us. You know, we need what one pastor called gospel glasses to help us interpret our world according to God's perspective. We need our perspectives to be shaped almost like a pair of eyeglasses helps us when we can't see clearly. Well, it's, These gospel eyeglasses that help us to see the world as we ought to see it. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Think about that. The kind of kingdom that comes in and says, Your relationship to me is more important. I'm the one who created you. Your first allegiance is to Christ. Even above family." Now, don't miss this. I am not saying that we should not pray urgently for our parents. I hope that we are praying desperately for parents who do not know Christ or for our spouses or for children. We need to pray and beg God that our family would come to Christ. But I know what it's like, like you do, to have unbelieving family who die or family who it's not clear where they stand with God. Have you had family like that? And in that moment... You see that that death has come and and now you're engaging with God on the meaning of that. And, And it's tempting to start using a kind of worldly lens to view that such that you have forgotten the goodness of God and the glory of the gospel. It is in that moment that the gospel should light up before us. It's in that moment of death that we should see God and his son Jesus more clearly than we've ever seen him before. It's not the moment where we pull the dimmer down on Jesus. It's the moment where we see the true value and our need of Him. And we know that it is, we know what it is like to grieve the loss of people who love Jesus and people who do not. One to eternal life and the other to eternal wrath. But let's never, as a people who have heard the good news and know the good news and believe the good news, Lose sight of the fact that we have been called not to grieve as the world does, but to grieve as those who have hope. And let's not lose sight of God's goodness and justice, even amidst his fearsome wrath. Let's never lose a sense of the goodness of the good news of God delivering us from our sins to eternal life. But those who love King Jesus most, catch this. This worldview might sound harsh that we love Jesus above all else, but catch this, the Bible tells us those who love Jesus most love others best. If you start trying to love some human more than you love Jesus, things are gonna get crazy quick. Your life's gonna start looking like 2 Samuel 18. See, do you want to love your unbelieving son more? Love Jesus most. And when an unbelieving child, grandchild, dies, grieve, hope, and worship God, then live with greater gospel clarity about how important it is that you and we pray for and evangelize those who do not know God. Let's not grow grow sleepy when death hits. Let us become awake for the gospel. The tragedies of these life, they can give you better gospel glasses, Now take note, King David's love for Absalom clouded his confidence in the will of God. God told David he would raise up evil from his house in 2 Samuel 12. He told him this. Was he not listening? He he, he said that he ordained to bring harm on Absalom in 2 Samuel 17 for his wickedness. And all of David's men who fought for him saw this. They, They heard God's word. They saw that God did what he said he would do. He delivered them. And they rejoiced. They fought for God. But catch David's response in verses 8.33 all the way to 9.8. We find that David grieves over the good news. Look what happens in verse 33. Here's what it says. And the king was deeply moved, and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, "Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom! Would I have died instead of you, O oh Absalom, my son, my son?" Now, this is this is really not a good look for David. Of course, a, a father grieves his son. But he grieves the good news of a great victory and men who have returned from risking their lives to bring about deliverance. His small group of mighty warriors, if you think about it, it's kind of amazing. He's against tens of thousands and yet this small band of mighty warriors go out against them. And they win. And it became, in the midst of this, clear to all of Israel... That Absalom was the Antichrist and that God was for David as his Christ. But David grieves and he grieves in a unique way. You'll remember that David has grieved throughout the book. Uh, We've seen other places where David grieved. Uh, David grieved uh, when he had the loss of of Saul and Jonathan. And yet he wrote that great psalm about the the, the hope of God. It, it It was despair and yet also he turns to worship quickly after that. He wrote psalms about his experiences of loss you remember that when he lost his child, he confused everyone in 2 Samuel 12. He grieved for seven days as he awaited whether or not that child would truly die. And at the end of it, once he died, he worshiped and everyone was confused. Why are you worshiping now? You've been grieving these last seven days, but now he's dead, and this is when grieving should begin, but now you're worshiping. Why? Well, it's because he had a good theology in those moments. He trusted that God had had done what God said he would do. He worshipped because he was saying, I I trust God. I don't always understand, but I trust God. But here in Absalom's death, he goes to a private chamber over the gate and wept, and he's inconsolable. This creates friction between him and his men. Joab, in in chapter 9, you'll find that Joab shows up Joab, remember, he he desired justice over love, and David uh, desired love to reign over justice. And so they're at odds. And in verses 1 to 4, Joab is told that the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom such that the victory had turned into mourning because the king grieved his son. Man, I can't imagine what it's like to go out and risk your lives for people, win an amazing victory in the power of the Lord, give God the glory, and turn around and have God's king crying because of his losses and don't forget this these men are fighting israel some of their own brothers and close acquaintances many lost on that day people they loved and the men who fought for their king didn't enter the gates with celebration and praise or commendation they snuck in like criminals See, David's inconsolable. And when Joab hears, he tells David this in verses 5 to 6. Look at chapter 19, verses 5 to 6. This is what he says. He says, Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today. That commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and if all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Not a good look. Yet David still doesn't speak to and, and praise his men as Joab encourages. He simply goes back down and sits at the gate. It's better. But he doesn't encourage them over what's happened. And yet he sits there to judge at the gate as a judge who does not like justice. See, David is a Messiah who grieved the cost of the gospel on his day. A Non-Christian, I just wanna encourage you not to miss this. We have better news than David did. See, news about a king who is better than Saul, he's better than Absalom, and even David. David's greater son is King Jesus. See, David saw his love for his son at odds with God's justice. And David's love looks powerless to overcome the requirements of justice and delivers those he loves. He, he can't save this son. See, Joab's justice looks cold and sterile. David's love looks powerless. Absalom, Absalom and his cursed death signals victory, but it can't save people from their sins. You, you remember his, his other son died. That son couldn't save David from his sins. But we do find another son, Jesus, who came. And he too hung on a tree. It's a tree where the love of God and the justice of God kissed. It's the tree at Calvary, a cross. And if you're not a Christian, the Apostle John uh, wants you to know and tells his church that those who are not for Jesus Christ are actually Antichrist themselves. He says in 1 John 2.22, This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son and has the Father. And whoever confesses the son has the father also. Here's the good news, though. If, if you were postured against God today, you have not put your faith in Christ. You are against him. But there is hope for you. There is hope that, that Absalom didn't see, and it's this. Paul says it in Galatians 3.13. Christ is the greater son. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. And it was Jesus who hung on a tree at Calvary for you and me. He died for our sins on the cross to satisfy the just requirements of God's law so that we might experience the love of God. If you haven't put your faith in that king today, let me encourage you, don't leave here without doing it. If you're live streaming, do it from your couch, but don't just stop there. Tell somebody. Tell a pastor here at the church, one of our elders. Uh, Tell another Christian, and let's talk about what it means to follow Jesus from here on out. See, John 3.16 tells us the love of God for rebels and enemies propelled God to send his greater son Jesus to willingly lay down his life for sinners like you and me. See, King Jesus didn't have to choose between love and justice. Jesus loved us by laying down his life to satisfy the just wrath of God so that God can be both just and the justifier of those who love him. So if you haven't done this, do this today. Let's pray and go to the Father in prayer together. We pray with me.